1: Texas just experienced one of the worst weather disasters in its history as temperatures plunged into a deep freeze. All-time cold temperature records were broken, sub-freezing streaks set new records, and the energy industry learned some very hard lessons. Houston is no stranger to extreme weather, and they were hit particularly hard with this event. Today's guest, meteorologist Matt Lanza, was directly affected by the weather as his family was left without power. He joins us today to discuss the range of extreme weather conditions the Space City has seen throughout the years, and we'll get his perspective on forecasting for day to day and extreme weather events for the region. Matt, thank you for joining us on the World Great to Party. be here. Yeah, you. this has been really awesome. You know, you're someone that I follow on Twitter and candidly, when I want to know what's going on in Texas or even in other places, I I, I check in on you on Twitter because uh, you do a good job with your, your analysis. I, I got to ask you this question because I ask all the Weather Geeks guests, how did you become a Weather Geek? It's
0: a great question. So I think it's a two-part answer. Number one, I'm going to say Hurricane Gloria, 1985. I grew up in uh, southern New Jersey. I was three years old at the time, so you don't remember a lot, but there were certain things, I guess, that were going on around the house that just kind of got me excited um, and interested in what was going on. And then really, I got to credit the Weather Channel, too, because I loved maps as a kid. And then when you could have the Weather Channel where you have stuff on the maps that talks about all kinds of different things, like that really piqued my interest. I think the combination of the two of those really got me uh, got me started.
1: And let me give the listeners a bit of your background just so so they know a little bit about you. You're the managing editor at Space City Weather, and you've been doing that since 2015. Uh, Also lead meteorologist at Chenier Energy Incorporated. Uh, You were a meteorologist and VP at Deutsche Bank Energy Trading. Uh, You've been with Southern California Edison. And you were also, I didn't know that I knew this, you've got some broadcast meteorology experience too in Utica, New York, and Syracuse. Uh, so you've, I, I think you're really interesting and somewhat like me in that regard, you've kind of dabbled in many aspects or corners of the meteorology career. Um, tell us a little bit about your broadcast career. Is that what you always wanted to do and said, got into it and said, nah, never mind, or did, did, did you <laughs> want to move on and do something
0: else? Yeah, it was, um, you know, like a lot of students when you're in college and you're trying to figure out what to do, a lot of them, you know, it's like... You, your choices, at least back when I was there, it's like you're either going to go into research into National Weather Service or into broadcasting, right? That's changed a little bit since then, but um, you know, I wanted to go into broadcasting, and that was sort of like that was the goal. Um, and you know, I, I worked to achieve it, and I got, uh, you know, started off part time in Syracuse, and then full time in Utica, and it was uh, it was a great experience. Uh, it was it was what I wanted, um, and it was exciting and it was fun, but. You know, after doing it for about four and a half years or so, you started to get a little bit impatient, I think, in terms of like the reality sort of hits you that that it's not easy to move up in broadcasting. And um, I just you know, sort of was asking around with some friends to see what they were doing. And I had a friend that worked in the energy industry, and that's sort of what convinced me that, you know, like, oh, maybe it's time to pursue something different. Yeah.
1: And you know, it's interesting, and I really am, you know, there's so much I want to talk to you about on this podcast today. We'll get to it, but Let's stay right there on the energy industry for a second, because I think some people are aware of this, but many people may not be aware of just how important meteorology and weather derivatives and so forth are. I remember when I was a scientist at NASA, getting a call from a headhunter one time, uh, and it was a a Headhunter asking if I were I was interested in Aquila coming to work for Aquila Energy or and at that time Enron. Uh, they were they were really staffing up people in that regard. So give the listeners a 101 on why a meteorologist works for an energy company.
0: Yes, yeah, so it, it's it's kind of a simple equation, like when you really break it down fundamentally. So the bottom line is that when it gets really cold in winter or really hot in summer, you're going to use your heating or your air conditioning, right? And that's a exceptional use of energy, homes, businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So from their standpoint as energy companies, they need to understand what the weather's going to do so they can adequately plan for how much they're going to need uh, in those times of of extreme cold or extreme heat or just moderate cold or moderate heat. It's an everyday thing. You need to have a plan in place. When I started off uh, in Southern California, Edison, worked with load forecasters that actually modeled how much energy was going to be. Uh, needed each day and one of they had a lot of inputs but one of the main inputs obviously was weather and and temperature forecasts and that uh, was something that we kind of worked hand in hand with them to sort of help them understand what was going to happen over the next x number of days there's also the element of not just you know today and tomorrow but looking out one two three four weeks in time you start to get into the weeds of weather forecasting where I think it can make a couple of you know more academic meteorologists kind of cringe about how you stretch the limits of predictability a little bit in the the field.
1: That's exactly right. And like I said, I I knew all about your space city weather work as the managing editor there, but you're also the lead meteorologist at Chenier Energy. Uh, Tell us a little bit about sort of what what you're doing with that company and uh, how'd you kind of come about uh, lining up that position?
0: Yeah, so it's, um, you know, they are, uh, Chenier is a a liquefied natural gas exporting company. Uh, They have uh, terminals at Sabine Pass on the Texas-Louisiana border and Corpus Christi in Texas. And basically they take U.S. natural gas, they liquefy it, and they send it to other countries around the world, sort of the the newer wave of energy that's going on. And so my job is to forecast what the day-to-day weather is going to be like for them in terms of impacts to the facilities from Anything from hurricanes, obviously, uh, to fog, to just, you know, wind or what's going to prevent uh, ships from moving and things like that. So that's sort of one of my key roles. My other key role is sort of what we just talked about as the, as the, as the energy meteorologist, where you're sort of uh, explaining what's going to happen over the next one to, to three weeks and, and beyond in terms of weather across the U.S. and, and honestly around the world, too, because that is becoming a little bit more of interest to people, um, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Asia and things like that.
1: All right. Now, with that backdrop, talking to Matt Lanza here on Weather Geeks, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Let's deal with the elephant in the room, and maybe it's even a brontosaurus, the energy situation and weather in Texas last week. Because I know you were directly impacted. In fact, we had a taping scheduled that we rescheduled to this day because you were without power like everyone else. And you know as we're sort of making light on this, this is a tragic situation. There were people that lost their lives and uh, created quite a bit of hardship. So give us sort of your, as a meteorologist, not only uh, there in Houston, but just in general, give us your lay of the land on how we did forecasting this event, this cold plunge. Uh, and then after you give us that sort of overview, tell us a little bit about your own personal experience.
0: Yeah, so I, I feel that the, the meteorology community honestly did a pretty good job. I mean, there were signals in modeling at least 10 days in advance that, that there was something significant that could happen, um, you know, across the central US. Uh, there were some questions as to whether we get into Texas, how far east it would get, you know, all these little nuanced details, things that but eventually they got ironed out. And I feel as though the, the messaging was, was pretty good. Uh, I know from our blog standpoint, we were talking about it several days in advance, uh, giving a lot of heads up to people. And, um, you know, I just think as a whole, it was, it, from a meteorology standpoint, I feel like it was a success because, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of lead time for a significant, impactful event. And um, I, I think we did pretty good as a whole. You know, personally, it was, it, it's one of those things that's like, so there are two aspects of it for us here in, in, in Houston. Number one was the winter weather, the snow and the sleet and, and all that. And then the other aspect was obviously the cold. And of course, you know, I'm from the Northeast. I'm getting excited. It's going to snow. <laughs> this is great. Um, so you're, you're trying to get jazzed up about that. And um, then obviously the, the reality hits you that, oh, this is a little serious. So uh, it was pretty exciting watching the snow kind of uh, happen the night before. We got a little more sleep than I was hoping. Um, but nevertheless, you know, waking up the next morning with snow on the ground, being able to take my two-year-old out to experience his first snow. You know, it was wonderful. Um, and fortunately, thankfully, we kept power that first day, which was the coldest day. And then we lost power the next day. Uh, And then that's when, you know, that we we share the story with so many others, you know, the house temperature dropped to 52, 53 degrees. And, you know, we, we all huddled together and kept warm and, you know, relative to other people and other stories that I've heard, I mean, we were extremely fortunate and extremely lucky. Um, You know, we, we had just mild, you know, mild hardship for a day and and then we were fine. Um, Even our water never really went out. It went out for a little while, but it came back uh, pretty quickly. Um, You know, even if we couldn't drink it, but uh, n- nevertheless, you know, I mean, it's just some of the stories are just awful from what we've heard around the area. And there's a lot of people with a lot of cleanup that they have to do um, after this event.
1: Yeah, no, this uh, from a different perspective, uh, in terms of cost and personal hardship, this may rival in some ways Harvey and in the influence there in terms of just impact on people, perhaps not, not in some ways, it's a very different story. But just imagine, folks, as you're listening to this story and how how tough it was for folks in Texas. And it was tough. And again, people lost their lives. Now, imagine the folks in uh, Puerto Rico who lost power for weeks and months. Just really, that, that that when I think about those things, because we lost power from a tropical storm here uh, in Georgia, I guess last year, the year before last. And I, it was tough for us, And but I tried to keep it in perspective thinking about that. Now let's geek out, we're meteorologists. <laughs> Let's geek out on the broader weather pattern that led to this. I mean, there's been talk about the polar vortex and the breach in the polar vortex, which allowed for this sort of dip in the jet stream such that we had got this cold uh, intrusion into the States. Talk about the large scale weather pattern that really led to this.
0: Yeah, so I I think there were, you know, it's a really complicated story, right? And I think we saw signals that, you know, something like this could happen, um, you know, earlier in the winter. And in fact, you know, one of the things that was interesting, there was all this talk about stratospheric warming and, you know, basically the stratosphere gets warmer, breaks down the stratospheric polar vortex and, you know, things happen as a chain reaction because of that in the mid latitudes, you know, where, where people live, quote unquote. Um, and we saw instances of that happen. It happened earlier this year in, uh, I think it was either late December, early January, China, uh, Japan, Korea, they all had some pretty extreme cold there. Uh, Europe had a, a pretty substantial shot of cold. The U.S. had been kind of skating along, you know, without too many, you know, wintry issues, uh, at least in terms of temperature, you know, for much of winter. And then all of a sudden you saw cold finally start to build up in Canada back in, in late January. And so you're like, all right, well, now you we got to pay attention and you know, then all of a sudden, it, just, it was the right set of circumstances to just unleash it all into, into the U.S. and right down the plains and in, into uh, parts of the East as well. And it was uh, just kind of a fascinating event. I think it underscores how much, how, much we, you know, how much better we're getting at forecasting, but also how much we don't know about exactly what these processes are that lead to this. And you, know, you obviously have to throw the, the wrinkle of, of climate change into the whole thing. What does that mean for it? Uh, there's a lot to to learn from this, I think. And you know, even though we've seen cold outbreaks that were somewhat similar to this in the past, each one of these, I think, especially this one, since it's the first one in, in a number of years where you have so much technology sampling it, you know, we can we can make some some interesting findings, I think, from this in the long term.
1: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
0: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Matt Lanza, who He's the name on Twitter that you need to be following if you're not following. And I, if you love weather and wanna geek out, I'm just gonna put the, my stamp of approval on him as an <laughs> excellent follow because I, I love to follow him. He's the managing editor at Space City Weather, also lead meteorologist at Chenier Energy. Now we were just talking about, and you said something at the end there that was important. The actual extremity of this event was not unprecedented. We've seen this scale of event before. In fact, I think we've seen something in that region before. However, I mean, I think there's discussion about whether, and you mentioned this, climate change would lead to sort of more stratospheric warming events or breaches in the polar vortex and connections to future more frequent outbreaks of cold. I think that's counterintuitive to a lot of people that we're even mentioning cold weather and, and climate change in the same breath. Uh, but it points to the complexity of the atmospheric system that you and I spent many a night studying when we were in college and studying <laughs> meteorology. Uh, talk to just the complexity of thinking about sort of the connections between extreme weather and climate. I mean, and what, what do you see or hear from your, from your lens as someone in, in Texas, let's face it, which is a place that may or may not have different perspectives on climate change and so forth, big fossil fuel industry there as well. Um, tell us what you hear uh, about climate change and weather connections from your lens.
0: I, I think it's it, we're we're sort of in an interesting place here in Houston. I'm I'm starting to to, to think more about this and, and talk more about this. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, we had floods in 2015 in Houston, and 2016, and then we had Harvey in 2017, and then we had a in 2019. You know, we had all these storms that just dropped epic amounts of rainfall, and you know, we're obviously not strangers to rainfall, but I mean, some of the totals. Uh, you know, people, people seem to, uh, a lot of people forget Imelda and how much rain it dropped. It dropped a ton of rain uh, on a part of Texas, not in Houston, but in between Houston and Beaumont, not far away. Um, you know, we've seen extreme events. We had a pretty severe drought here back in 2011. Um, it, was, it was kind of a big deal. Um, we have, you know, obviously the cold now. You know, people here are, are suffering in a way. There's a lot of trauma in Houston. Um, Houston's been hit really hard by significant weather. And in some ways, I feel like we are on, much like California with wildfires, we're sort of on the front lines of uh, of climate change. And, you know, whether these events have happened in the past here or not, which a lot of them have, they're they're probably getting worse. And they're probably getting, becoming a little more frequent. You know, something has, has changed in the last few years, it seems. Um, and given our location on the Gulf, I mean, we really haven't, We've had the flooding, we haven't had the, the, the major hurricane. We had a scare last year with Laura, which also played into Houston. There were a lot of people that were really frightened about that, um, but we haven't had the big hurricane yet. And that's really what worries me is that we just, we haven't seen the worst of what we could see here. And I think people are waking up to that. Um, I think people are more open to discussing it, uh, you know, particularly in the Houston area. Uh, Houston um, is, is very progressive on that front. And, um, you know, it's only something that's going to become a a bigger and bigger issue as time goes on. Uh, There's no there's this is not slowing down. Sure. And it begs the
1: question to what we just saw in Houston. And I I want to broaden the discussion just to beyond the, the cold. But I'm using the cold as context here. Infrastructure. Our, our, our natural gas uh, infrastructure, our water infrastructure, our renewable infrastructure, the wind, wind farms, that there was so much misinformation being spread about um, uh, after the cold event. From your perspective, when we see an extreme event, whether it is a hurricane or a cold outbreak, uh, you, you, you are in the, you're in the uh, sort of chain of sort of discussion and communication on these when do companies or cities or jurisdictions need to really be planning for these events? Because as you said, the forecasts were there, we knew this was happening. Is this a case where we often can make short-term preparations but then a lot of these preparations need to be taking advance, uh, taking place well in advance, weeks, months, years in advance? What, what's your thought on prepar- preparing for extreme events in general in short and long-term?
0: Yeah, I think it's 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 an important point. So because I I think both play a very important role, and um, I I think one of the things that's interesting is you have to have a lot of uh, of of pre planning. You have to run through tabletop exercises. You have to to think about how um, you know some storm on paper might affect your 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 company, your town, whatever. Um, So you need to have those those experiences. Only if only to build relationships with the people that you're going to need to work with in those times of duress, uh, and I think that you know by planning for that, even if necess- you know when you get to the actual event itself in the short term, and you know inevitably things are going to change, and you're going to get thrown curveballs, and you have to be able to be flexible and, and think on your feet during that. But I think that uh, the planning that you do over the long term really helps you with in, in the short term, and I, and I think it's it's something that uh, has improved in, in recent years, but I definitely think there's more we can do. And I think we have to also, you know, use our imaginations a little bit more about, you know, what could impact a place that, you know, just because a place hasn't seen something before doesn't mean it can't happen. Um, I can speak directly to that with Hurricane Michael, um, you know, even though that had hit Florida and, and didn't affect Texas at all, that kind of got me to sit back and say like, okay, Here's a storm that was not necessarily supposed to become a Category 5, but just kept strengthening, strengthening, strengthening right up to landfall. What if that happens here? What are we going to do? And that, frankly, scares me a little bit because, you know, I I think we think about those things, but we don't necessarily plan for them to happen. So that's instructed my own personal view of how to forecast and how to talk to to people that make decisions a little bit more about, uh, you know, hey, you know, this is a scenario that could happen. Um, that we need to be ready for, even though it doesn't seem like it's likely, you know, that those one to 5% chance risks, I think we need to pay more attention to.
1: Talking with Matt Lanza about all things weather and about recent events in Texas and many other things. And you just made a point that I sort of emphasized with my class at the University of Georgia just this week. Uh, I was making the point that with our weather forecasting capacity, and even some things that we know about climate, um, You know, hope or waiting and seeing are no longer acceptable risk mitigation strategies. But I also mentioned that the reality of the real world is we have certain information on the scientific side, but there are cost benefit analysis that jurisdictions and companies go through. Here in Atlanta, for example, we don't get very much snow, but when we do, sometimes it cripples us and people are like, well, why don't you have more snow plows and salt trucks? Well, is it worth the, the investment of the city of Atlanta to buy 200 snow plows and, and salt trucks when we you know rarely see snow. Um, but I think you throw in the specter that some of these events likely become more frequent or, or intense as climate changes. I think it starts to throw some different variables into the equation. So it's just an interesting discussion uh, that, that you kind of allude to in your point. Now, I actually wanna shift gears slightly and talk about space city weather. Now, you run a weather site that's very popular in Houston called Space City Weather. Tell us about why you started it and how much reach you have and um, what you actually do and what your, your objectives are with that.
0: Yes. Yeah, so uh, Eric Berger was a science writer for the Houston Chronicle uh, for a number of years and sort of built up a following here in Houston, uh, talking you know not just about space and science, but about weather. Um, and he uh, had started a weather blog there, and he asked for a little bit of help uh, during his uh, last year at the Chronicle. And so I, I, through through a friend of a friend, we we got uh, hooked up, and uh, I basically started writing part time. Uh, on on Fridays for him, and then he left the Houston Chronicle to go write for Ars Technica, and had this big following. And he's like, "Hey, do you want to do an, an independent weather blog?" And I'm like, "Sure, let's do it. Um, you know, let's use this reach that we have, this voice that we have, and, and just roll with it." And it became kind of, you know, a fun little side gig to work on and everything. And then Hurricane Harvey happened, and um, our site just kind of exploded, um, and it became very popular. Uh, you know, people are, are hiding in their closets from tornado warnings, or you know, hiding from flooding. and They've got their phones and they're looking uh, at our site for the latest updates. And um, it's it's just a it became kind of its own thing. And then, and since then, it, it hasn't let up. And we sort of took another step during Hurricane Laura last year, uh, you know, which for a time it threatened Houston, um, and people were were very intrigued by by that, and they they used our site, and we were you know, there were some days where we were reaching, you know, over you know, 1 million uh, people that were visiting the site, which is just kind of a, you know, just throw those numbers out there. It's incredible to think about. It's just, you know, we're just two people that are running a, a weather blog kind of in our free time. You know, we all have, we have day jobs. Right. So well,
1: well, speaking of that, though, do you monetize the site? Though, Do you have sponsors or donors and so forth?
0: So we we have a we have a fundraising drive each year, um, and our readers uh, contribute to that. And it is uh, just the, the support is phenomenal, um, and it, it's wonderful. And uh, we are sponsored by uh, Reliant Energy uh, here in Houston, the Houston company. Um, you know, so it's sort of it, it's a nice marriage because of uh, obviously energy <laughs> issues here in Houston and Houston being an energy capital. It's uh, it, it works out well for us. We've been uh, thrilled to have their support for uh, several years now this this makes,
1: shifts my thinking here to communication of weather risk because you mentioned Harvey and, you know, again, meteorologically speaking, and I remember I writing something in Forbes talking about the potential rainfall totals that we might see because we saw that Harvey was going to just park itself there. Uh, but yeah, I think, there, I think even with that, I think people there locally were caught off guard a little bit or like, yeah, we get rain and floods here in Houston all the time. Um, I think, what is your thought as you were communicating these potential rainfall totals and flooding totals to constituents there in Houston or people there in Houston, I should say. Um, Do you get the sense that people still were a bit like, yeah, right, whatever, or did they see those numbers like, okay, I gotta, gotta, um, as we say in University of Georgia territory, I gotta hunker down. Uh, (laughs) What do you think people, how do you think people react to that
0: type of um, number that we were saying? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I think people were caught a little off guard. I think, honestly, I don't want to say we were caught off guard because we knew that this was going to be bad for for several days. And, you know, it just was one of those things. You're looking at some of the weather models leading up to that. And you're like, I have trouble believing what this model is saying. You know, how can I expect other people to believe it? It was just one of those surreal, surreal experiences. Um, but I think one of the things that we've done well uh, as a site is that we we sort of operate on this no hype mantra, right? So we don't want to we don't want to sensationalize weather. We don't want to, we want to be kind of boring most of the time, right? Just to be honest, because there seems to be a little bit of an appetite for that from, from some people. They, they just like a little bit more subdued, uh, not over the top weather. And so that was our mantra kind of going into that. Well, when we're starting to, to scream and shout that this is going to be a really, really bad storm, at least that gets our readers to, to sit up and take notice and be like, okay, they're, they're really being serious about this. I think I need to take this pretty seriously. And that was one of the successes that we had is that when we said we were nervous about this storm, our audience started to get nervous about this storm. And that was uh, one of the things that I think helped uh, at least for some of our readers, at least to, to drive home the severity and the seriousness of what was about to happen. One of the best things I read, well, you know, I didn't read too many comments because never read the comments, right? but unfortunately our readers are pretty supportive but one of the best comments i read was just one random person that said you know i i I have a whole bunch of things on my my first floor um, and what i did was when i saw how serious you guys were taking it i moved a lot of those things up to my second floor and i flooded but none of those things were destroyed and for that i thank you and that was just like if you can do that that's great like that's that's what you're what you're trying to do
1: so one of the things that I, I notice about uh, Space City Weather is something that we've been noticing in our my world as a director of the University of Georgia's Atmospheric Sciences Program. We often talk about trust. Oftentimes, and for many years, the model was people had their favorite favorite local television meteorologist that they trusted. Uh, in every market, you have them. Or they trust the Weather Channel, or Jim Cantore, or Stephanie, or whomever. whomever. But I think I'm seeing a shift a little bit in that people trust you. I mean, in that market, it's not just the local television person it's uh, Space City Weather. And even here in the in Athens, the University of Georgia, we have something called AthensGeorgiaWeather.com, which is a sort of a hyper-local blog that our students run and people trust it now. They've got you know 70,000 followers on Facebook. So what is your thought on the evolving nature of what we call the digital meteorology um, sort of era that we're in?
0: Yeah, I think you, you're definitely seeing changes. And I think that, um... You know, a lot of this. I feel like a lot of this started with uh, with Jason uh, Salmonow and Capital Weather Gang up in the D.C. area. And, you know. The Capital
1: Weather Gang and Jason Salmonow and folks, they're good friends of the Weather Geeks
0: podcast, <laughs> and they they do a fantastic job, right? And um, you know, they sort of. I feel like they sort of started that idea. Well, I think we we've sort of hit a point where you have. A lot of competing voices now in in a social media landscape and you've got these people that you know they have zero in indications to who they are and what they're who they work for what their background is and they're putting out weather forecasts and they can get you know huge followings on on facebook or twitter or wherever and and so that leads to a, a, a you know, with with people shopping more online you have sites like ours that, that kind of work for, for that kind of idea that, you know, like, Hey, all right, well, this person is saying this. Well, let me see what, 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 space city weather says. Uh, and I don't, you know, it's not necessarily, I, I don't think the trust in in TV meteorologists has been diminished. And in fact, you know, we've seen, uh, there were statistics during uh, the, the 2017 hurricane season where local broadcasting did very, very well during some of the storms, um, you know, so that, that, that need is still very much there, but, there's also the need to meet people where they're at, and and people are online more and more now, and they want to. Some people want to read the weather, some people want to watch a weather forecast, some people just want to see a map, some people just want to read a headline. So you have to consider all those different things uh, when you're trying to, to communicate. And I think that that this field is very important. It's very important to to to, to find. Uh, you know, I think you're going to see in more more uh, media markets these these types of sites uh, sprout up that have people or or groups of people that are become trustworthy uh, as meteorologists in the community. And it doesn't, won't happen overnight, won't happen instantaneously. And and it won't happen necessarily by independent sites all the time. Sometimes it'll be the local newspaper. Dallas has a a writer for the uh, Dallas Morning News that writes about weather that I think has built up a pretty big audience worth of trust up that way. And you're seeing this in other markets as well, Nashville, Memphis, uh, they've got independent sites that run um, you know, all these different things. So you're going to see more and more of that. And it's going to be important for those sites to, to kind of become trustworthy. Uh, and they'll become as much a part of the media market as, as any TV station or newspaper has been in the past.
1: We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm geeking out with Matt Lanza, a meteorologist in Houston. Uh, But even though he's based in Texas, he has a national following. People are very aware of his work because he does good work. And so I'm happy to have him on Weather Geeks. And by the way, if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at Matt Lanza, M-A-T-T-L-A-N-Z-A. Quickly do it, go get your phone right now and do it because he's he's worth the follow. He's a really good follow. you know, as we start to draw to a close, I want to circle back uh, to uh, Houston because you, you all, you know, beyond Harvey, you all get a lot of extreme flooding, heat, uh, so forth there throughout the year, in addition to hurricanes. Um, is there anything unique about Houston that makes it so flood ready? I won't say flood prone, but flood ready to keep me kind. Uh, I know it's, you know, some of the previous landscape that it was settled on is there. And I know it, like Atlanta where I live, it's a very sprawling city as well. Um, what, what makes Houston so special when it comes to flooding?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very complex scenario here. So, you know, number one, it's flat. And, you know, the, there's, there's a very, very gradual slope from, from Houston into the Gulf, and so the water doesn't drain very quickly here. Um, it, it takes a little bit of time, and that's why we have a you know, wonderful network of bayous here that have now had a whole bunch of trails sprout up on them, and they've become, you know, really uh, recreational parts of the community. We finally started to embrace our bayous in the last 10 or 15 years, I think, and uh, are starting to, to, to realize how important they are. Uh, that they help drain our city and and they have a a purpose uh, in everyday life. And so, you know, that's how it's pretty much drained. And the problem is, is that, you know, we get it so multifaceted here. You have the cold front that comes down, but just doesn't have enough oomph behind it and stalls out near Houston and we get heavy rain with the Gulf right there being so warm. You just get all this added moisture. It's like having a bathtub right in your backyard. It's gigantic. Um, so we're just kind of set up for heavy rain. You get tropical systems, which can provide their own sorts of heavy rain. We had, you know, tropical systems that move in and collapse in steering currents like Harvey or Allison back in 2001. Uh, Claudette in 1979 dumped, I think, 50 inches of rain in Alvin, which is just south of Houston. Uh, you know, this is, this is not necessarily uncommon. What happened during Harvey was obviously a little bit t- different, but, um, you know, we're sort of in, A target area for a lot of heavy precipitation, and then you factor in the the sprawl and the development. And we've, you know, there were there were a lot of uh, fields west of Houston that were used for rice for a number of years, and those are now developments and suburbs. Uh, There's been huge growth here. The Houston area was not as impacted uh, severely by the recession back in the late 2000s, Um, so growth continued here and really hasn't stopped, and it just continues to sprawl and sprawl and grow out and out and you know, we have you know one little inner loop, we have a second loop, uh, freeways. Now we got a third one that's oh, developed. It's supposed wow. to be little, yeah. They call it grand parkway. Uh, and it's supposed to be the longest beltway, I think, in the world when it's all done. Um, and you know, but that drives further growth, further out. And when you're paving over this this land, you give less opportunity for water to soak in. And so it moves faster and it moves downstream faster and it floods into the bayous faster, and then you get you know, more flooding in places that maybe didn't flood 20, 30 years ago. So it's a complicated problem and it's affected by all these different things. And, you know, with the growth not really stopping, I, I don't know if it's going to really change or get any better anytime soon.
1: Yeah, and my wife's an urban planner uh, by training and uh, she's told me a little bit about some of the planning and zoning uh, laws or lack thereof in that area too. And so that certainly probably leads to some of the development, but we see it in many places. Uh, So it's not definitely not unique to Houston in in many regards. Um, You mentioned that you were from the Northeast. And so you haven't always lived in Texas. I'm curious if there are any particular weather phenomena or events that sort of are your favorites or are you most interested in or just stand out in your mind over your career as <laughs> a that you want to share with the listeners?
0: Yes. Yeah, so growing up, it was Nor'easters. My bedroom faced Northeast uh, growing up. And so anytime we had a, a coastal storm, you know, would always hear the rain. It was usually rain, unfortunately, that would hit my window. Growing up in southeasters, Jersey, grew up on the wrong side of the rain snow line. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was one thing that just really piqued my interest. We had a Nor'easter in 1998 that's not heralded by any uh, measure, but it, it had it, like an 80 mile an hour wind gust in Wildwood, New Jersey, I think. And that was just like one of those storms that was like, wow, this is incredible. So I grew up loving nor'easters. I moved uh, to upstate New York to work in TV, and that was lake effect country. So I got to understand how to to forecast lake effect snow, and that is just fascinating and really, really tough to forecast. Uh, but really, really uh, amazing things can happen with lake effect snow that people don't necessarily like. They can have some pretty bad impacts, but uh, from a, just a weather geek perspective, it's, it's just a phenomenal uh, thing to watch. And then you know, it's just like. I really like forecasting these smaller scale things. The lake effect snow. When I moved to California, forecasting how far inland the marine layer was going to go. That sort of thing I think has been really uh, enjoyable for me, um, you know, from a forecasting perspective. But, you know, just all time, my favorite events, it's got to be the blizzard in 96, because that was the, we were on the right side of the rain snow line for that one. I think we got 18 inches of snow at my house, and that was the most snow I had seen to that point. I was, I was all set for a few days with that. That was, that was a lot of fun.
1: Now, as we draw to a close in this really fascinating discussion with Matt Lanz, I want to circle back to energy because we mentioned some things about the recent coal snap and climate change and so forth. Uh, So renewable energy is changing the game there. And again, I know it's a big fossil fuel um, sort of industry there in Texas, but I think many of these companies are adapting and shifting What's your perspective on how re- re- renewable energy is changing the industry? For, even with some of the discussions we heard recently about when turbines freezing over and whatnot, it wasn't just one thing that was happening there. This event, there were multiple things going on, uh, but I think a lot of that got sort of mischaracterized. But generally, give me your sort of thoughts as someone who supports and works with natural gas companies and energy companies. Um, is the landscape shifting in terms of how people think about renewable energy and how it works together with fossil energy, fossil fuel-based energy?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think there, there's, there's definitely a shift toward more of, a, of an appreciation for renewables. I think people understand that, that, that that's, whether anybody likes it or not, that's where we're going. Um, and, and that's gonna become a bigger part of the energy picture as time goes on. Um, and uh, you know, Texas has, I think, more wind power installed than any other state in the country. Uh, and, you know, that's probably going to continue to grow a little bit further as well. Um, and, you know, solar is going to become a big deal in Texas also over the next, I think, 10 years. So, you know, just speaking from a Texas standpoint, there's more wind, more solar, and that's only going to grow elsewhere in the country as well. Uh, so, you know, so, so the renewable energy picture is definitely going to be a significant uh, driver over the next 10 to 20 years and eventually probably take over as, as a majority driver at some point. Uh, you know, down the road. And uh, from, a, from a weather forecaster, meteorologist perspective, uh, that's great for us because I mean, those are all, you know, wind speed needs to be forecast. How much cloud cover needs to be forecast. You got hydroelectric power in the West. It's an important uh, part of the picture as well. That needs forecasting. So all these things are, are related to weather ultimately. And so you also have, you know it's not just the demand side that you're gonna to have to forecast for, it's the supply side as well. And that's a really exciting, I think it leads to an exciting future uh, for, for meteorology. Now, that, actually that's a great point that I hadn't thought about. I think that we could see an emergence
1: of a new sort of sector of, of our fields and sort of uh, renewable energy meteorology and to some degree. I mean, it's all related to what we yeah. do. Matt, this has been awesome. Where
0: I, I mentioned your Twitter site, but there, are there other Twitter sites or websites that you want to share with our listeners? Yes, yeah, so I mean uh, obviously visit our, our site Space city Weather, uh, spacecityweather.com and we're space city WX on, uh, on Twitter. You can follow us there. Uh, you know there's a number of uh, great uh, meteorologists I follow. and I think if you go to my Twitter profile and you look at view lists, I've got a couple lists set up from some past hurricanes where I've put a number of researchers and just people that I find to have really good, credible information um, available. You know, it's one of those things I sort of started on my own, and then I realized, well, you know what? People probably are interested in this. So, uh, you know, feel free to, to check out any of those lists. Uh, they're, they're named after the storms, uh, and you'll find a number of, of meteorologists that if you're not already following, you probably should be. Uh, it's a great community, uh, social media-wise, meteorology. Um, And I I think that there's a lot that we can all learn both from each other and if you're just a weather geek and you want to find out something else, great people to follow.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Before we get out of here, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Christian Walker. Christian is living out his dream of earning his meteorology degree uh, at the University of Georgia. It's atme- actually atmospheric sciences, but close enough. Uh, his lifelong passion for meteorology has inspired him to create a weather Facebook page as a middle schooler, which gained thousands of followers in Hartford County, Maryland. He's most interested in studying severe weather, tornadoes, and even climate change. The 2011 super tornado, tornado outbreak stands out as his most memorable weather event, and I'm sure many others would agree with him. Uh, wishing you the best of luck in your journey on earning your degree. And I know something a a little something about this because he's actually in my program and I don't have anything to do with these selections of Geek of the Weeks, but shout out to Christian for being this week's Geek of the Week. Keep up the great work. Now, if you know someone that would like to be a great Geek of the Week or should be one, check out our social media page on Twitter or Facebook for more information about how to apply. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My
0: pleasure. Thank you for having me here. It was uh, great
1: to chat with you. Absolutely. And uh, thank you all for continuing to listen. I hope you uh, learned something today. I found this a fascinating discussion. We'll talk to you next time.